Shall the church now faint or fear when the comforter is near? We find ourselves in Romans chapter 9 this morning, and if you would take your Bibles and turn there. Romans chapter 9, this is one of those places in the Bible where the chapters, the divisions of the chapters aren't so helpful for us, because Romans 9 verses 30 through 33 really belong with chapter 10. It's actually one argument, one passage. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 29, the Apostle Paul makes the points that God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to include Gentiles in salvation. That in his sovereignty, he called Israel out, he made them a great nation, he gave them the law, But God, in his sovereignty, has now opened the door of salvation to Gentiles, to the peoples of the world, everybody else. And Paul makes the point that God, because he is God, can harden Israel and turn and show mercy to those who are outside of that nation and outside of the covenant that he made with that people group. And he shows that God will fulfill his purposes for Israel as well by just subtly mentioning at this point a remnant, that there is a remnant from the nation Israel. He will elaborate on that in chapter 11 a bit. But these verses launch Paul into the next main point or the next main defense and explanation beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, with the question, what shall we say then? How are we supposed to respond to all of these truths? Are we to think that Israel was innocent and God has just set them aside according to some random, from our perspective, some random sovereign plan? And so he answers this question all the way through the end of chapter 10 in verse 21, and all of it can be summarized as Israel's unbelief, Israel's unbelief. Now in chapters 9 through 11, Paul is vindicating the gospel, remember that. He's given us the heart of the gospel, justification by faith. He's talked about the glory of the gospel or the assurance of the gospel. We are assured of future glory, the promise of the gospel. Now he is vindicating the gospel. He is answering charges that the salvation that is revealed in the gospel is untrustworthy because Israel has been set aside and the church has now become the people of God. What are we supposed to do with this dilemma Despite all of their privileges, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, all of these things that establish a special relationship with God, the Jewish people can only know God, can be made right with God the same way Gentiles can, by faith. And so Paul's defense goes like this so far. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, assure us that God's word has not failed. 
God's word has not failed. He is accomplishing all things in full accordance with his promises and his plan by his sovereign election. God's choosing of Isaac instead of Ishmael, according to his promise. God's choosing of Jacob, even though he is the younger son, the younger twin brother of Esau, shows that God has never operated as one who is bound to our standards and our expectations of him. Chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, prove that God is just and blameless. That in the exercise of his sovereignty, in his keeping of his promises, in his election, God is just, he is right, and he is blameless. No accusation can be brought against God. He is free, truly free. He is free to show mercy, and he is free to harden because he is the creator. And because he is the creator, he determines what is right. He determines what is just by the standard of himself, not by some standard that exists outside of himself to which he has to answer. And now in chapter 9, verse 30, through the end of chapter 10, these verses reveal that Israel has failed. It is not God who is to be blamed, but Israel has failed. They have failed to believe God and they have rejected their Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an example of this tension that we have talked about, if you've been with us for this study of Romans, this tension between the sovereign work of God and the culpability of people, that we, as the human race, stand guilty before God. We are answerable to him for whether or not we believe, for whether or not we receive Christ. God elects, God hardens, and yet Israel is culpable for its unbelief. Israel is answerable for rejecting the righteousness God has provided for them in the person of Christ. Unbelief here is not just doubt, struggling through truth. It is a refusal to accept. It is a rejection. So in this passage then, the Apostle Paul sets forth three indictments, if you will, three charges of guilt, of unbelief to the nation of Israel. He's explaining why, despite all of their privileges, Israel does not know God's blessing. Why does Israel not know God's salvation? First of all, they have rejected God's righteousness. Secondly, they have neglected God's salvation. And thirdly, they have refused God's gospel. Now, we're covering a large chunk of text. This lengthy text could be broken down into smaller chunks and really dug down into, but they are all really contributing to this one argument to this demonstration in vindicating the gospel that Israel has failed, that Israel has refused to believe. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as then as we come to these verses that you would give us wisdom and discernment, 
Lord, that we would hear in them the call of the gospel. In your name we ask this. Amen. So they have first rejected God's righteousness. If you would, look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Now, let me summarize what Paul says here into three key thoughts. There are three ways that Israel has rejected God's righteousness. First, they have rejected God's righteousness by pursuing righteousness through the law. There's an astounding irony in verses 30 and 31. The Gentiles who were not looking for righteousness, and you can rewind back to Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about and lays out the condition of the human race as a whole. The people of the world are not looking for righteousness. In fact, they suppress righteousness. That is the whole human race, and it's why the whole human race comes under the wrath of God. And so the Gentiles are not looking for righteousness, and yet they have attained it because of faith, because righteousness is attained by faith. On the flip side, Israel, who is pursuing righteousness through the law, did not succeed in reaching the law. They did not accomplish it. They could not finish that race. They could not get to the righteousness that the law promised. And when Paul says here, a law that would lead to righteousness, he means that the law of Moses, hypothetically, would justify somebody before God if that somebody could keep it perfectly. And that's the route that Israel continued to insist upon to attain righteousness. And so just like in choosing Isaac over Ishmael, even though Ishmael was also born of Abraham, even though Ishmael was the oldest son of Abraham, God kept his promise and chose Isaac and turned all of human wisdom and expectations on its head. He did the same then with Jacob and Esau. Esau is the oldest brother. Jacob comes out second. God says, but the, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have rejected. As the line of promise. 
God is doing the same thing. He has given Israel the law. He has given them the covenant of Moses. He has called them out from all of the other nations that live in rebellion against God and given them the basis of a relationship with him. And yet now God is taking that in a way, standing it on its head and opening up salvation to the rest of the world, to everybody. Because it is really all by faith. The reason Israel has not attained this righteousness is put simply in verse 32, because they did not pursue it, that is righteousness, by faith, but as if it were based on works. And you'd say, well, now wait a second. They were given a law that was a filled with commandments and regulations, statutes, precepts, commands they had to obey. Isn't that the path God laid out for them was to pursue righteousness by works? What Paul is saying is that even though the law is laid out that way, the purpose of the law was actually to point them to faith. With the constant reminder you can never keep it. The entire sacrificial system that was part of that law, continually having to over and over again slay an animal for the forgiveness of sins. You could never finish. It would never finish. The law would never complete it. You could never keep it. The law actually pointed the people to faith even though the law did not provide the means by which they could believe, it was pointing them toward it. And when the realization of the law, the fulfillment of the law came, the only way the law could ever be fulfilled, the nation of Israel said, no, we will continue to attain our own righteousness. And the second way that they rejected God's righteousness was by rejecting Christ. Verse 32, Jesus is the dividing point of the entire human race, beginning with the people of Israel. To say that Jesus is the stumbling stone means that Jesus is an unavoidable obstacle in history and every person's life. You cannot avoid him. You can choose to ignore him, you can downplay him, you can deny that he existed, but you must make a choice when it comes to him. His claim to be Lord and Savior confronts every person. And every person must then choose to either believe on him or reject him. I laid a stone in Zion, it begins with the people of Israel. And they are confronted with the same choice that the rest of the world is confronted with, even today. What do I do with Jesus? I can mock him. I can reject him. I can trust in him. Same choice. Every person must choose to believe on him or reject him, either receiving righteousness and eternal life or earning death and eternal damnation. This is what he means by shame in verse 33, being put to shame. Israel found Jesus offensive, and they rejected him. He wasn't what they expected, like Ishmael, 
like Esau. He exposed their inability to please God by keeping the law. He demanded a righteousness that they could never attain. He placed himself to be at the center of their faith instead of themselves. And they rejected him. They crucified him. Thirdly, they have rejected God's righteousness by substituting their own righteousness. And we see Paul's love for his people again, don't we, in chapter 10, verse 1. My desire is that they be saved. I'm saying this because I want them to be saved. To find true salvation. After all, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That is, they have rejected knowledge because they have rejected what God has revealed to be true. That's the knowledge he's talking about. They know the scriptures. They know their Hebrew Bible, which for us is the Old Testament. They know it backwards and forwards. They have that knowledge, but they've rejected it. So this is a willful ignorance of God's righteousness. This is an unwillingness to submit to God's righteousness and instead substitute their own righteousness. See, submitting to God's righteousness means humbling ourselves and receiving righteousness as a gift. Because that's the only way you can attain it. instead of insisting on our own righteousness. And if you think back to Romans chapter one again, when Gentiles, the human race as a whole, why are they under God's wrath? Because they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of the things created, right? To worship them instead. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Israel has been given the law. They've been called out of all of that, given a law that reveals to them the one true God. And instead of receiving his righteousness, they have exchanged the righteousness that he offers for their own. And the question becomes then, how can we submit to God's righteousness? The answer is found in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus puts an end to finding any righteousness in the law. He marks the end of the law as any means of righteousness. He is its fulfillment and he is its completion. Meaning that Jesus has fulfilled the law, not set it aside, not rendered it broken, but completed because Jesus kept that law perfectly for your sake and my sake and then suffered a death even though he was innocent. So you see, Jesus brings it to completion by having fulfilled it and then ends it. It no longer has a role 
for any means of righteousness, even if it is for us a means of instruction and understanding God and revealing to us God's ways, it is not the means of righteousness. Look to him. Call on him. Trust in him. Here Israel's pride parallels the moralism of our own day. The delusion that boasts we are good enough. We as a culture don't claim to keep the law of God as revealed in the Bible, but we do substitute our own righteousness for God's, don't we? And what is really concerning is how even in the church, we often equate being a Christian with our own achievements. And let me ask you this. If I were to dig down into your thinking and your beliefs, would I find that despite hearing the gospel, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, Despite claiming to be saved by grace, would this be really what you might believe? That by being a good Christian, by being a faithful churchgoer, by being a sacrificial volunteer or giver, by being a nice person, that you can establish your own righteousness as the way of escaping the wrath of God? I believe there are many people who sit in churches that even though they hear grace and they hear faith, they operate and they function as someone who's never actually been converted like this. They are still living by the scales of filling up one side with as much good as they can and outweighing the bad and always trying to perform righteousness and do these things. And we are saved unto good works. We are saved to do good things and to obey Christ. But those things we are saved unto, not by Your righteousness must be God's righteousness, and God's righteousness is found only in Christ. Israel was given a choice. They chose to reject God's righteousness in Christ and to keep their own. Israel is also convicted here of unbelief because they have neglected God's salvation. They have neglected God's salvation Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a glorious truth. This really is the gospel, isn't it? Paul summarizes the righteousness based on the law in verse 5 and the futility of living by it so that he can highlight the righteousness that is based on faith. I know verses 6 and 7 sound a little cryptic, don't they? What Paul has done is he has combined a couple of Old Testament texts from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, and then Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. He has taken these and he has put them together okay, to, to explain to us the nature of how close the gospel is to us. In Deuteronomy, these words refer to the law. The word is near you, meaning that God's commands are accessible and they are understandable. What God required of the people of Israel was clear and it was close. Israel never needed to attempt to access God by climbing to heaven or to seek truth by plumbing the depths of creation. No, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Now Paul takes these texts and he applies them to Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is God's final and complete revelation of himself. So, it is presumptuous for any of us to think that we can ascend to heaven to bring Christ down. In other words, to make God knowable, to somehow attain to this understanding of God's person by ascending to heaven. How is this so? We have the incarnation, we have the death of Christ. He was here. He lived, fulfilled the law with perfect obedience, died an innocent death, and was raised to life. We have Christ down, if you will. He has been present with us, John chapter 1. He has tabernacled among us. God's glory dwelt among us in the person of Christ. And it is presumptuous for any of us to think that we need to plumb the depths to find a way to Christ as if he is hidden or still dead or inaccessible. No, Jesus has risen. He has ascended. That's what Paul's getting at. 
And now the word that is near you, that is in your mouth and in your heart is the gospel. It is the gospel, the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, the word of faith is the message that calls for faith, not for your own righteousness. And in the gospel, the word is near to us in a way that it was never near before. Christ has come. Righteousness is now provided and given to anyone who simply believes. Righteousness is near you because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Now, don't get wrapped up, wrapped around, I should say, this confession with the mouth as a condition for being saved. Because this is what it kind of sounds like on the surface, doesn't it? That to really to be saved... There is one work you have to do. You've got to confess Jesus as Lord. For one thing, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, that Paul is connecting the gospel to the verses in Deuteronomy that mention the mouth and the heart together. He is drawing a parallel. In one way, Paul is saying that what God said way back, even in the law, in Deuteronomy is now fulfilled. God is being consistent with the gospel. For another, Paul is not adding an external work, confession, to the internal believing with the heart. The power of the gospel, Paul is saying, the power of the gospel transforms the whole person. It transforms the whole person. It cannot transform the one without transforming the other. It cannot transform the heart without transforming the mouth. And it cannot transform the mouth without transforming the heart. Look even at verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Are being justified and being saved two separate things? Is it possible for you to be justified and not be saved? No. Could a person believe with his heart and be justified and then fail to confess with the mouth and therefore not be saved? No. We are bringing to these phrases a division that Paul doesn't recognize, that he doesn't allow for. It's not the heart that accomplishes justification and then the confession of the mouth that accomplishes salvation. He's saying that the heart is where faith originates, the mouth is where it is articulated, the whole person is transformed by the gospel. And the whole person is saved, not just the heart, but the mouth, the whole person. 
And what is crucial then to this passage is that this is true for everyone. Because in verses 11, 12, and 13, Paul comes back to where he started in chapter 9, verse 30. The gospel is for everyone. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And Paul is making the point that this is how and this is why God exercising his sovereignty is vindicated before the human race. That it is by faith and has always been by faith. Whether you are Jewish or Gentile, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Gentile, anyone who's not Jewish. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So just as God overturned all human expectations and presumptions by choosing Isaac, By electing Jacob, so he has, by saving Gentiles, overturned all human expectations and presumptions. Everyone, verse 11. No distinction, verse 12. Lord of all, the same Lord, Lord of all, verse 12. Everyone who calls, verse 13. Everyone. And in verse 13, he actually quotes... Acts chapter 2, verse 21. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now think about this. Paul is making a point about Gentiles coming to faith, knowing God's salvation, being included in the people of God. And he quotes Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 when Peter is standing on the southern steps of the temple and preaching to whom? Jews. He's preaching to the people of Israel and he's confronting them and he condemns them and he says, you have rejected God's Messiah, your Messiah that God promised. And what is their response? They are cut to the heart, right? The way they are cut to the heart. What then shall we do? What must we do to be saved? And the church is born. And the first believers, the first members of God's new body, new people, the church are whom? Jews. Jewish people. Paul takes that same verse, that same proclamation from Acts chapter 2, and he now says, everyone is everyone. Everyone is everyone. But as a people, as a nation, under the covenant with God, the covenant of Moses, Israel has missed it. And you say, now wait a second, you just mentioned that Jews believed. Yes, some of them. But as a whole, as a people, they have missed it. They have neglected God's salvation, even though it is near, even though it is close. In one sense, Paul says everything he says here in verses 5 through 13 to say there is no excuse 
God didn't take the gospel, the way of being saved, and hide it and make it impossible to understand. It's near to you. It's in the gospel. We find the third indictment or the third charge in chapter 10, verse 14. They have refused God's gospel. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now the sequence in verses 14 through 15 is clear, isn't it? If they're going to call upon the Lord, that requires faith. That requires believing. Believing requires hearing. Hearing requires Preaching, a proclamation, and preaching requires sending, the sending of messengers. There has to be someone sent. Now, if you've grown up in the church, and some of you have, some of you haven't, some of you have. If you've grown up in the church, you have probably heard these verses issued as a call to the mission field or to evangelism. How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the word of the gospel, right? This is true, and there's nothing wrong with saying, look, if we're going to have people call upon the Lord, they have to have faith, and if they're going to have faith, they have to hear the gospel, and if they're going to hear the gospel, someone's got to preach it, and if someone's going to preach it, you should be ready to go. You should be willing to be sent, Usually this is tied to Isaiah chapter 5 when God calls Isaiah and says, who will go for us? Send me. Here am I, send me. Right? While it expresses the glory of preaching the gospel, these verses have a different role in this passage based on what Paul says next. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not obeyed the gospel. See, the gospel is not just an invitation. Hey, God would like you to come to him if you're up for it, if you're up for it. The gospel is a demand upon your life. God has issued forth a call to forsake sin, rebellion, autonomy, your own righteousness, and to repent and to come to him in humility and received his, receive his grace, his free gift of righteousness. To refuse to come to him 
is not simply turning down an invitation, it is disobeying a call. They have not obeyed the gospel. Despite the glorious heralding of the gospel, they have not obeyed it. And he quotes here Isaiah 53 verse 1 because he is pointing back to Isaiah, Isaiah's mission, which was to go, if you look in Isaiah chapters 5 and 6, Isaiah's commission from the Lord was to go and to preach judgment. And he said, by the way, Isaiah, no one's going to listen to you. Because the reason I'm sending you to proclaim salvation is to actually harden your listeners. It's to harden the people because I've already determined judgment. Jesus would point to that, those same passages, those same verses over and over again when he would confront the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He would say, you do not have ears to hear. When you come across that phrase in the Gospels, this is what it's talking about. For those who have ears to hear. So he points back to Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed? He has heard from us what we've been proclaiming. No one. Now, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Have they not heard? Indeed, they have. And now he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Just as David in Psalm 19 looks at the, the law and he says it is universal. God's word has is, is been communicated just like the heavens and the earth communicate glory. The law then communicates the ways in which people can know God and follow God and please God. Paul now points back to Psalm 19 and he says, there is proof right there that Israel is culpable. That the human race is culpable. Because the words of the gospel have gone out in all languages to all people to the ends of the world. I'll also note at this point that Paul has quoted the law, the prophets, and now the writings. And for the Jew, when they held up their scriptures, the Old Testament, that is how they divided. They had the law, the prophets, and the writings. And now Paul has gone to every one of them. In these verses alone, and he has shown that salvation by faith is consistent with everything God has already revealed. The gospel is vindicated. Have they not heard? They have heard. Verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Was it unclear? For Moses says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. He's saying that Moses, the greatest prophet, 
in Israel's thinking and history and consideration had already pointed to the fact that God would make them jealous by giving salvation to others. They had already been told. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. This is going back to chapter 9, verse 30. The Gentiles weren't looking for righteousness. They didn't care about God. They were suppressing righteousness. They were suppressing the knowledge of God. But I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says... All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I've given them the law. I've given them every reason to follow me, to believe in me, to expect a Messiah who would have to deal with the conditions of their hearts, their sin. It's all there. But they have rejected it. A disobedient and contrary people. In other words, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Verses 14 through 21 is really a concluding argument, a verdict, proving Israel's guilt and vindicating God's righteousness. You can't lose sight of that argument, what Paul is doing in these chapters. You might think, man, this is, this is really harsh. This is really harsh. But God will provide for even the disobedient and contrary people. That's what chapter 11 is about. And as much as I know you would like to stay for another hour and a half, we're going to save that for another time. Okay. But God will save. God will save Israel. But I think Paul leaves it at this point, at the end of chapter 10, with this harsh verdict this utter condemnation of Israel's unbelief, their culpability before God, to again set up the fact that even they cannot know salvation, even they cannot come to repentance unless God does it. God must do it. And it will all be for his glory. And don't forget where he's going at the end of chapter 11. The unfathomable wisdom of God. That he doesn't owe the human race anything and needs no counsel. It is all for God's glory. And he will warn us in chapter 11, and I will say it here, that we can miss it too. We can miss it too. Not every person outside of Israel is saved any more than every person inside of Israel is saved. And those who hear the gospel, even though it is close, even though the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, you can miss it. You can miss it today. You can continue to insist on your own righteousness. You can refuse to call upon the name of the Lord. You can persist in refusing God's gospel. We can miss it too. And this is a reminder and a call that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to call upon the Lord. In a day when he may be found, the door is open. It is wide open. 
God is ready and willing to forgive and to cleanse and to restore. But you must call upon him in faith. You must believe upon him. And Lord, I pray that that is what those who may not know you would do. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, that we would rejoice in the power of the gospel that is near to us in our mouths and in our hearts, that you have transformed our whole persons to belong to you, to pursue you, to love you. We can claim no power of our own to understand you, to know you, to love you, to follow you, but Lord, only that you have done this. You have saved us. And so we give you glory and we give you honor and we give you praise that you are not bound to the human race, our expectations and our standards. Lord, you are the creator. And Lord Jesus, you are the savior. Amen.